Hello, and welcome to Inside Policy Talks, the premier video podcast of the Macdonald-Laurier Institute, Ottawa's most influential public policy think tank. At the Macdonald-Laurier Institute, we harness the power of Canada's brightest minds to tackle Canada's greatest challenges. Learn more at macdonaldlaurier.ca. Okay. Well, welcome to Inside Policy Talks, the in-house podcast of the Macdonald-Laurier Institute. I'm Aaron Woodrick. I'm the director of the Domestic Policy Program here at MLI. Today on the podcast, we're going to be talking about the issue of immigration in Canada, which is an issue which for a long time was not really a contentious one here, perhaps even uniquely so in the Anglosphere, if not the Western world. Uh, but recently, like in a lot of places, has become much more contentious. And to talk about it, I'm very pleased to be joined by Eric Kaufman, who's a senior fellow with us here at MLI and also professor of politics at Buckingham University in the UK, amongst many other titles. He's the author of several books, including White Shift, Populism, Immigration, and the Future of White Majorities, and the forthcoming Taboo, How Making Race Sacred Produced a Cultural Revolution. Eric, thanks so much for taking the time today. Great to be here, Aaron. Now, Eric, uh, I mean, we could probably talk about this issue for three hours, but we're going to try and keep it to uh, to under half an hour. I maybe wanted to start with the, the political realignment in the West we've seen over the last decade. I'm talking, of course, of, uh, you know, shifts like the voting bloc for Donald Trump, like the, the conservatives in the United Kingdom in 2019. We haven't yet seen this in Canada, uh, you know, manifest itself in an election. But if the polls are to be believed, the next election may see this here as well. Um, how does immigration fit into this phenomenon of political realignment? Well, immigration is really the central issue for to, to understanding the realignment that's going on in Western countries from the old economic left-right or free market versus redistribution dimension, which is still there, but has been overshadowed increasingly. And this is piles of research essentially showing this, that it's overshadowed increasingly by a cross-cutting cultural dimension, which is really a, some have called it liberal, conservative, open, closed, globalist, nationalist. Immigration is really kind of the key issue defining that. So whether you are essentially a restrictionist or whether you are uh, somebody who believes in current or higher numbers, I mean, that is, that's the key divide there. Um, and that's kind of been realigning and reordering uh, electorates across uh, the West. I'll give you one example just from where I sit here in Britain, where the um, Conservative Party used to get votes mainly from the middle class and, and Labour Party from the working class. And that, that lasted from, you know, 1945, if we take the post-war period, 1945, right up until Blair's election in 1997. Sure. Um, a big difference in terms of class uh, composition between labor and conservative. Now there is no difference at all. Uh, if anything, sometimes the conservative, like the 2019 conservative coalition, arguably somewhat more working class than the labor voter coalition. And so what's occurring is you've, you've kind of seen the eclipse of that uh, economic divide and, and overlaid that instead by one that's based on immigration. So now if you look at uh, parties like labor and conservative in Britain, uh, Republican and Democrat in the U.S. and conservative versus, say, liberal stroke NDP stroke Green in Canada, um, you'll see massive differences in terms of attitudes to immigration. In Canada um, and in the U.S., it's now on the order of like 50 points. In hmm. Britain, it's about 40 points. I mean, this is coming from a position, let's say, in 20, 2012, when it was Romney 
uh, Obama, there were maybe there was maybe 12 points difference between attitudes to immigration between white Democrats and Republicans. By the time of Trump's election, that was 50 points. Mm. Same thing actually happens in Canada between like 2013 and 2019. Just the numbers that we have show this huge gap emerging in uh, attitudes to immigration. So that's kind of a good little indicator, right. best indicator we have for this new populism and polarization. Okay. And so I guess the question is, why now, right? I mean, historically speaking, uh, obviously different countries in the West, even in the West, have had some different experiences with respect to immigration. If you look at the, the New World, US, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, these are there's long been high immigration societies and are largely the majority of people there are, are immigrants from other countries. Um, whereas in Europe, they've sort of only started to see, you know, immigration at the scale in, in recent decades. Um, and yet we're seeing similar uh, realignments in all these countries. So I guess the, the question is sort of what what caused this? What exactly is happening? Yeah, I mean, I think the first point to note is I wouldn't bracket uh, the New World Societies so cleanly from the old ones. I mean, the New World Societies have had ethnic majorities. Now, the, you could say the boundaries of right. those ethnic majorities have shifted to include, say, Catholics and Jews over time. But sure. they've had this conception of, of a majority group, and they've had immigration restrictionist politics in various populist waves over time. Um, and the, the U.S. would be an example. 1890 to 1925, and then you had some restrictionist legislation put in. Um, and so I think there's always there's more commonality than people allow generally between the two societies. Now, if you think about the rise in immigration, <clears throat> which is in large measure a post-1960s phenomenon, um, we have seen outbreaks of populism. So in Britain, you know, Enoch Powell is a conservative politician who broke with his party over immigration in the late 60s. Um, and you know, mobilized large numbers of people behind, and that's an example, just one example of the power of this issue in the past. Uh, but and certainly, the rise of the far right in in Europe, the Liga Nord, uh, Jean Marie Le Pen's Front National, Freedom Party in Austria, all of that was occurring from the late '80s onwards. As you're getting these waves of uh, immigration, it was the former war of Yug war in Yugoslavia, former Yugoslavia, and and other waves coming in. So I, this is not. Totally new, but the scale is much larger. Yeah. It used to just be a few parties. And in the US, you had Proposition 187 in California, Buchanan's primary bid, which was quite successful in the early, early mid-90s. So you had some precursors. Um, we had the precursors, but it really sort of from 2014, we we really see this populist moment. European elections, we, you know, roughly 30% of French voters, British voters, Danish voters voting for populist right candidates. Mm -hmm. uh, and since then, we've just had, you know, we've had Brexit, we've had Trump, more and more and more European countries, you know, Germany with the AFD, Sweden with Sweden Democrats, you know, Portugal, Chega, Vox in Spain, you know, all these countries, which none of whom people would say, oh, they'll never get a populist right party, and they're sure. all getting them. So I just think that's, you know, we're seeing the rise, the spread. Now, of course, we speak today, Wilders as topping the poll in the Netherlands. It's another example of, and the AFD is doing very well, the Sweden Democrats. So some of the numbers that are being racked up by some of these parties, uh, Le Pen might win in the presidential election in France next time around. So that the kind of, whereas when Le Pen got 18% back in 2000, you know, you right. had a million people on the streets. Uh, and now we're talking about numbers like, you know, 50, 
40, 40, 50%. So, so it's kind of like the scale of this thing has really increased. It's been mainstreamed uh, now, whereas before it was seen as, as kind of a, you know, a rare novelty. But I guess, you know, is this happening? It, you know, when we talk about attitudes towards immigration, you're talking about these gaps between different voter coalitions. Um, is it really just a matter of the scale of immigration? Is that what sort of triggers this? I mean, in your view, um, is there sort of a sliding scale of the number of people who are comfortable with uh, immigrants and immigration and that number decreases the larger the number of immigrants that come in? Is that just sort of the general uh, lay of the land? Yeah, there's just, there's a combination of factors. I mean, if we're talking about changes over time, uh, you know, if when you have an increase in numbers, so in Britain, there was a reasonably close link between numbers, um, the salience of the issue, you know, if people are asked, because really what, what happens is it's the sh whether you want immigration to be reduced, stay the same or increase, that standard attitude question is very tied into political ideology now, mm -hmm. um, heavily so. And we, we just saw that. I mean, I just mentioned this 50 point gap between white Democrats and white Republicans. I mean, but but actually, if you probe even into people's liberal conservative self-placement, that's heavily tied to your attitudes. But you can be somebody who says, I want less immigration, but immigration's my number four or five issue after the mm. economy and healthcare. What happens with uh, increased numbers is the salience tends to rise. The media stories tends to rise. Um, it's not a perfect relationship, but in many cases, like in Europe, that relationship is reasonably tight, especially when it comes to illegal immigration or, or asylum claims. Um, the asylum numbers tend to drive salience, which and the salience numbers tend to drive populist right voting. I mean, that's, I think, a reasonably well-established relationship. There's some other things going on. So clearly, the extent to which the flow is illegal or asylum-based versus legal is going to matter. Sure. Um, but it's not the only thing. So legal numbers also do matter. Okay. And, and is that, um, I mean, I guess for a long time, you know, certainly the case in Canada, people that voiced any opposition to immigration were sort of framed as, you know, xenophobic or racist or, uh, you know, something you don't, you, you didn't really want to say anything because it would, it would, you would be seen. Now it seems to be much more acceptable to, you know, cast doubt on immigration in Canada, as you may know, I, I think similar in the UK, housing is a big issue. So part of the part of the concern is just a, a sheer volume issue saying, where are we going to put all these people? I can't buy a house if more people come. But is there is there a is there a more uh, basic concern here with a lot of people, which is it's not um, it's not a conscious racism. It's more a sort of uh, uh, a fear of being in the minority. If you're in any majority group in any country, and you see a very different group or groups coming in who are very different than you speak a different language, you have different cultural traditions, religions, that's going to start to make you um, uncomfortable at some point. And that's sort of a natural human reaction um, for, for a lot of people, no matter where they live in the world. Um, and so is it is it the fact that um, the number, it, I guess, is it is it just not just the numbers, but the composition of uh, migrants that sort of impacts people's comfort level? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the um, academic research on this shows that cultural distance is definitely a factor. Mm. Um, and there's less concern over more culturally proximal groups. Not always. Sometimes there's a narcissism of minor differences, but that is definitely a factor. You know, if you take a, a country like Germany, East European, or, or in much of Europe, the East European migration flow is not generally deemed to be a major driver of populist right support. Now, it was in Britain 
to a greater extent, but in your, but that's faded to, to a large extent now. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one thing. Of course, you have the Muslim question, which is very important in many European countries. Uh, but I think we need to distinguish, I guess, between something that is specifically tied to, say, Islam, and, you know, and there are issues specifically tied to Islam, and then those that are specifically tied to just the decline of the ethnic majority groups as a share of the population. So it may not be strictly about Muslims, but it could be any group that is not uh, of the ethnic majority. I think both those both are independently important. You know, when they do, academics have done a number of these studies where they ask people to imagine the country becoming majority minority, in, particularly in the case of the U.S., yeah. uh, which is you know, looks like it's what the projections are showing, although there's kinds of issues around that. But still, uh, when that framing is put to people and then they are asked about their views on a whole series of issues, including something like free trade, um, they become a lot more kind of conservative um, and they they actually become more populist. And, and I think this is sort of getting at, and I did this experiment in Britain where I talked about, you know, would you like a higher inflow but higher skill or lower inflow with lower skill. So there, what you're doing is you're choosing, you can choose sort of a high skill inflow, but you're going to get more numbers. Right. Trade-offs. Yeah. People were kind of like agnostic between those two, but once you actually said, okay, so the higher skilled inflow with the higher numbers is going to lead to this change in the ethnic composition of the population and the lower skilled will lead to this change. The numbers really, they shifted like 25 points. And I think that's sort of tapping on something important, which is there is this kind of when the change in the ethnic composition of the population is made salient and manifest, it really moves immigration uh, attitudes uh, quite a bit. Right. And so I think this is sort of if I were to say and I think the research also on immigration attitudes in general uh, there was a meta-analysis done your own whether you're unemployed or not, how much money you're making has almost nothing no predictive power in terms of your immigration attitude. And so I I really think this is very psychological and cultural, deep-seated. And you can get at at it even with anodyne questions like, um, you know, do you think that, uh, do you approve of all tennis tournaments having a Wimbledon-style dress code? (laughs) Um, (laughs) That is actually a, a, you know, a predictor of your views on immigration. People who want, who are more order-inclined as opposed to, you know, diversity inclined. Uh, and that could just be on something like tennis uniforms. It could be a messy desk versus a clean desk. These are all things that have some predictive power. And so there's a sort of deep-seated psychological aspect, I think, to this, as well as a cultural aspect. And these these factors are really, I think, playing underneath. Mm-hmm. And it, you, we have to distinguish that, I think, from the, the issues that are getting play in the press or in politics at any one time. So in Canada, you you know, it's a good example of where immigration's not been an issue, and yet the parties have been very far apart in terms of the public opinion uh, sure. recently. Interesting, interesting. Yeah. Um, I, I, you mentioned uh, you know uh, um, Islam and Muslim immigration. I'm curious as to your thoughts on obviously with the with the war we now have uh, between Israel and Hamas and Gaza. Um, you know, we've seen some large scale protests in the West. Um, where a number of people have been very sympathetic, if you know, explicitly for the Palestinian cause, but in some cases, uh, people arguably for for Hamas and, and being sympathetic towards them. Um, 
you know, and I think a lot of people have drawn the parallel with 20 years ago, post 9-11, you know, you didn't really see a lot of mass protests in Western cities sort of celebrating, um, uh, you know, a terrorist attack. Um, and yet that's now, I think a lot of people have been kind of shocked at the scale that we're seeing in places like London and Toronto. Um, you know, you know, is, is this, is this a phenomenon that's a result of immigration? Is there something else going on here? And, you know, what do you think the, the impact of these protests will be on, on attitudes towards immigration in these countries? Well, I think it's definitely an outgrowth of immigration. So you weren't getting these protests in Budapest, for example. And, and, you know, so there's no question without the immigration, you wouldn't have the protest. Now, of course, most immigrants aren't out protesting yep. those without saying, but yep. um, my, now in terms of impacts on, on attitudes, I mean, my, view is that unless this is sustained over a long period, it's not going to make an enormous impact on public opinion. I mean, my comparator here are the terrorist incidents in, that were occurring with greater frequency in Europe, let's say in the mid 2000s. Yeah, the bombings. Yeah. My, my, you know, I think I, and I think I've seen the odd paper there is that, that that isn't really what moved the needle. I moved a little, a little bit, but Generally, what seems to have occurred is this this gradual rise in sort of non-ethnic majority share over time that seems to be correlated generally with broadly rising support for these parties. I mean, you can look to even, you know, the Austrian Freedom Party hadn't said a word about Islam prior to 2008 or thereabouts and had already reached 27% or there, thereabouts under Hyder, you know. So I think there was, and in Britain, Brexit really wasn't, a, I mean, tangentially, perhaps in the, you know, in the edges, it had, an, it had a component to do with openness to Europe and openness, therefore, to the uh, migrant crisis. But that wasn't necessarily the, the main issue. Um, so I think there's, even though Islam is part of the picture for sure, I still don't believe it's the main driver. I think the main driver is more this sense of loss. Uh, and those people who see change as loss, I mean, the, the electorate divides, some see change as stimulating and exciting, others see it as, as loss. And, and so a question like, you know, British culture was better in the past, or things in America were better in the past, is what, probably right. the best question you can ask to pick up populist support. Um, and so it's more of those sorts of uh, cultural conservative concerns, I think, that are really central here. Do you think it's an issue of, uh, you know, fear or reluctance about change generally or about specific types of change? Well, I don't I wouldn't call it a fear. Uh, and this is, I think, one of the mistakes, because I think you have to distinguish between and, and some of the literature like uh, Jardina's work on white identity, I think, nicely distinguishes between kind of fear of the other and mm -hmm. attachment to one's own or, or to one's uh -huh. own way of life. I think it's the, the second, which is the more important. I, I think that the fear factor, I mean, it plays a little bit, but I think this is sort of the way these things are often framed. I actually think this is much more about a sense of loss of the familiar, a sure. sense of wanting to slow that down that, that animates this sentiment rather than a, a xenophobic fear of the outsider. I, don't, I think Western cities and countries are already pretty diverse. I think people are already having plenty of interaction and with, with yeah. people who look different. I, I don't think that's really the, the, the key factor here, but I think it is much more this idea of this sense of loss that pervades those who, who are genetically or for whatever reason wired to, to want order and uh, the past to be more like the present. I think that's probably how I would best describe it. Now, it's not to say these other issues around housing and 
pressure on public services and crime and whatever it is. Uh, but my, I'm sort of more of the view, more convinced by the view that people come to their views on immigration first, and then they see other problems through the lens. So they would then see pressure on public services through the lens of an immigration skeptic. So a good example, I asked, you know, British uh, Brexit voters, how big a problem is pressure on public services, zero to 100? The average answer was 50. So 100 being the highest, zero being mm. the least. They go for kind of, it's a middling problem. You just have to put two words, immigrants putting pressure on public services. It goes from sort of 50 to 75, right? So that's oh. that's an indication of, and, and, and of course, the the percentage of the problem that's down to immigration has to be smaller than the problem. But yeah. I think that sort of tells you that this isn't primarily about these material concerns. But those material concerns are, of course, a, a useful fig leaf if you're trying to defend against the charge of racism. And that's where right. I think in discursive terms, that's why we hear these kinds of rationales more is that they're more acceptable. Yeah, fair enough. Uh I, I do want to get, uh, you know, to the issue of uh, political correctness or, or wokeness. But before we get to that, I just wanted to ask one last question about immigration generally. I mean, I, I think it's fair to say that in uh, certainly in North America, uh, you know, immigration, even large scale immigration in the past, you know, integration sort of proceeded sort of organically, and naturally, fairly well. Uh, you know, we didn't have the sort of uh, diverse immigrant inflow that we've seen maybe in the last half century that has maybe complicated that a bit. But I'm curious as your thoughts on the impact of of technology on the integration process. So so that's to say before when you leave your country, you kind of had no choice but to integrate into a community because you were cut off from your homeland. Now we live in a world where you can kind of physically be present in one place, but almost live culturally completely like with a live link 24-7 to where you're from. And is this is this uh, this is obviously changing the dynamic of integrating into your sort of host country and, and what the impact of this is going to be on people's attitudes towards, you know, whether immigrants are becoming joining us or essentially sort of importing um, their their homeland into into the host country. Yeah, I mean, I think I think you're right that the the new technology and satellite TV and the Internet and everything makes it possible to. To live abroad in another or, or live in a in a country and yet be completely wrapped up in your home country's you know politics and culture and that's true. I mean, I suppose um, I suppose you could argue that that's that could slow down integration. Now, on the other hand, it, it, it's also true that we have a more fluid society, more mobile society in some ways, and that might might make it easier. I mean, I tend to have the view that it's going to take. The same amount of time it did in the past. And, and actually, if we look at the past, I mean, if we take, say, the American experience with Southern and Eastern European flows from the turn of the 20th century, it was basically 70 or 80 years, I would say, for ethnic neighborhoods to break up, intermarriage, cross Protestant, Catholic, Jewish lines to take place. And I don't think we should expect it to take uh, to go faster. So right. I would say these processes take a long time. And when I say Process of assimilation. I mean, you know, down to the level of intermarriage and, and residential integration. I think, and there are no real government programs, policies that I've seen in free societies. I'm not talking about Singapore right. where they can do it. But I mean, in, in 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 sort of substantially free societies where people can choose where to live, that can really have really made any impact on this. Whether we're talking about so-called Republican France or so-called multicultural Canada or wherever. Um, right. And so I think these are organic processes, and that's one of the reasons the immigration 
uh, controlling the flow is probably the only secure lever that countries have in order to calibrate uh, immigration and integration. I, I don't think you can have high immigration and somehow wave an integration wand and it'll not be a problem. I think that's quite fanciful. Yeah. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Um, so yeah, coming back to that question, and maybe we'll, we can sort of end on this note, because, you know, in talking about preparing for this, uh, you, you know, you wanted to make clear that it's, uh, you know, when we come back to the political realignment, um, it's not just uh, immigration, of course, um, there is this issue of political correctness and sort of what's acceptable to even debate. Um, and the, I know it's an overused term, woke. Uh, so maybe, and maybe as someone who writes on this issue, you could give a succinct uh, definition of that for our listeners. But, um, you know, how does this fit into the political realignment? Well, well, it, it's a very crucial piece of the puzzle because limits on what you're allowed to debate uh, and discursive limits set by political correctness uh, are, have been very important. So, for example, and, the, and why they're important is because, because they essentially close off the discussion of immigration in the mainstream. And that opens uh, an opportunity, really, for the political entrepreneurs which, which we know of as populists. It's a bit like, I use the example of the Soviet department store that only sells black pants and, and the, the black marketeer is selling the blue jeans and everything else people want. Right. You know, if the electorate wants a party or wants a policy offer on reducing and slowing down immigration and the, the mainstream up. parties uh, won't do it because of political correctness, then there's a big space there that a, a populist can fill. And that's what's, that is essentially what happens. Sweden you know the mainstream parties refused to talk about it. Uh, were called racist by the by the press. The Sweden Democrats then swooped in, and then very quickly were on 12, 13, eventually up to twenty five percent. And then the center parties moved and abandoned the taboo. That hasn't yet happened in Canada. Obviously, um, it it is probably at some point going to happen. It's interesting in New Zealand, Ardern seen as a progressive now, but um, actually campaigned to reduce immigration from 80,000 to 40,000. And, you know, I, my understanding is that she has not actually gone through fully with that. But it's just interesting that there was an example of where, despite a, these accusations of racism swirling around, there was somewhat of a breaking of that taboo. Uh, it remains to be seen whether in the Canadian case um, that will happen. If it doesn't, so if Polya, who seems to be as pro-immigration as Trudeau, is unwilling to go there, then I think that will strengthen the PPC's numbers. Yeah, this is an interesting question. And there's no question that uh, Polyev has uh, certainly, um, you know, done a lot of outreach in immigrant communities. Now, the question is whether he's uh, speaking to the immigrants who are already here and whether that translates into support for future migration. Because I'm also curious as to the, you know, in some of the surveys I've seen, uh, in terms of the, uh, you know, coldness towards immigration, it is fairly high often even in immigrant communities in Canada as well. Um, so that that uh, that may be an interesting dynamic for him uh, to digest. Um, yeah. Well, this has been great. Thank you so much, uh, Eric, for joining us today. I really appreciate your insights. Uh, always good to talk to a fellow Canadian who is abroad and can sort of give us the, the world view, the comparative view on what's happening here at home. Thanks, Aaron. It's been a pleasure. All right. And thank you very much to the listeners. We'll catch you next time on Inside Policy Talks.